Hello, my name is Wang Yan, and I am a reporter with News China. With our weekly News China podcast, we aim to give insight into the trends and happenings in modern China through a historical lens. Today, we discuss floods that have made China's early civilizations. Right after putting coronavirus under control, China had to fight against the flood. Since June, more than 63 million people, mostly in southern China, have been affected by floods, with 219 dead or missing. By August 13, due to the 59-year record rainfall along Yangtze River and Huai River, according to the National Disaster Reduction Center of China. And the flood have not let up. On August 18, the waters of the Yangtze River started lapping at the feet of the 71-meter Leshan Giant Buddha in Sichuan province, normally high above the water line. It was the first time the water had risen so high since 1949. Some 100,000 people were evacuated from the area. People are concerned that the floods of 2020 will end up being as serious as those in 1998, which were the biggest for nearly 50 years. To some relief, China is much better equipped now to fight against the floods than it was in 1998. In the past six years, China invested more than 143 billion U.S. dollars on water projects and will invest nearly 185 billion U.S. dollars on 150 water projects from this year, including flood prevention, irrigation, and water supply. There is a special relationship between floods and human society. Water is at the center of ancient civilizations called river valley civilizations. For example, the Nile summer floods deposited soil, which fertilized the delta. Chinese civilization began in the middle and downstream of the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. Unlike the Nile flooding, which brought prosperity, it is troubles related to water, including flooding and conflicts on water supply, that underlies the geographic political and cultural structure of the earliest Chinese civilizations. Flood stories appear in mythologies of the world's oldest civilizations. Stories of floods are told in the Bible, in the epic of Gilgamesh of the Sumerian civilization between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in the Middle East, in ancient Hindu legends, and in the Maya civilization. The legend of hero flood control had a more far-reaching impact on ancient Chinese civilization than any other flood stories in Chinese history. According to the story, about 4,000 years ago, during the prehistoric period, Earth was afflicted by a massive flood. The deity, or in some versions, Emperor Yao, a legendary king, ordered a man called Gun to deal with the flood. Gun failed by building dikes to block the flood. 
After he died, his son Yu continued his job. Yu used a different way. He channeled the flood water down the mountains and rivers, and finally to the ocean. He succeeded. He is known as Yu the Great. Yu's story is not more interesting or exciting than those flood stories in other civilizations. The uniqueness of Yu's story is about the human factor. Yu is not a messenger of the gods. He is a human hero who dealt with the flood. Although the task itself may come from an order from a god, the success of the task depends on the human wisdom and power that Yu represents. However, was Yu a real person? If he was, then was he a great engineer or a wise leader? These were not the questions that people in ancient China cared about. The years between 770 BCE and 221 BCE saw the emergence of dozens of Chinese philosophers who had lasting influence on the Chinese culture, including Confucius. Yu's achievements were recorded in some of their works. During the Western Han Dynasty, Sima Qian, father of China's historiography, wrote about Yu in his masterpiece Shi Ji. This record focuses on two aspects of Yu's greatness. The first is his virtue. He lived a very thrifty life. For years. He was so busy and dedicated to his work that he passed his house three times, but refused to meet his family. This story passed down from generation to generation, and made him a role model. In Chinese culture, it means he has the virtue of the son of a god. The second is Yu's achievements. They go beyond his success in flood control. All the places where he set his feet were grouped into nine provinces, known as Jiuzhou, according to the Zuo Zhuan, a Chinese narrative history written during the Spring and Autumn period. Jiuzhou refers to China. Why would Yu's footprint have become the earliest land known as China? Because Yu's venture was not just about. Containing the floods, wherever he goes, his flood control efforts actually involved governance in the geographic, social, political, and cultural sense. When Yu saved people from the flood, he led and organized them to clear watercourses and roads, and put human society and animals in their proper places. As a result, mountains and roads. Were no longer divided by nature; they became well connected, like blood vessels, by well organized human activities. Given this, Zuo Zhuan continued to say that Yu not only stopped the floods, but established a basic social order. In that society, humans and animals were all settled in their own places properly and did not disturb each other. All this led to the legitimacy and justification of a political institution, which is built on political identity rather than power. This is why traditionally 
Chinese historians regard Yu the Great as the founder of the Xia Dynasty, the first kingdom in ancient China. Actually, Xia's existence remains a controversial question among the historians till today. But there is no doubt that Yu's legend is a part and a symbol of the Chinese culture with deep historical roots. It has nothing to do with whether Yu is a real person or not. And this is the most important contribution of Yu's story to the history and culture of China. For Chinese civilization with a heavy reliance on agriculture, management of water resources is crucial. Some water projects built in ancient times are still working even today. In southwestern Sichuan province, the Dujiangyan irrigation system, a World Heritage Site, has already played an important role in making Sichuan the land of abundance for more than 2,000 years till now. The Grand Canal, the world's longest man-made waterway in eastern China, has been running from Beijing in the north to Hangzhou in the south for nearly 1,400 years. Well-developed irrigation systems have been crucial for Chinese civilization, which has always featured intensive agriculture not only in ancient times, but also today. This long history and culture of the use of water resources with big waterworks may also explain why modern water technologies like dams and reservoirs were immediately embraced by China. Dealing with water resources has always been a part of China's recorded history over thousands of years. It is indeed about how dynasties rule the land and people. The political importance of water use in Chinese history has attracted the attention of several prominent foreign philosophers. German philosopher Karl Marx and Max Weber observed how the politics of irrigation resonated with the mode of production of political institutions in China's history. Karl August Wittfergo, a German-American historian in the 20th century, argued that China has always been one of the hydraulic civilizations. According to his hypothesis, building waterworks in intensive agricultural economies needs a concentration of resources and political power and this underpins the government's dominance of, in politics and economy in the world's oriental civilizations. Water management has also shaped rules down to Chinese communities. Networks of irrigation canals played a crucial role in China's agriculture development. A canal distributes water resources Professor Han Mao Li, with Peking University, researched how water resources are distributed along canals in China. Normally, farmers along the middle and downstream had to build the canal. Those at the upstream did not, because of their advantage of close proximity to the origin of the water resources. Then the chief of the canal would be selected among farmers in the middle and downstream 
to distribute the water supply during the irrigation seasons. Downstream farmers would use the water first, then those along the middle stream and upstream. In this way, the geographic advantage of the upstream villagers is balanced by the distribution power to the middle and downstream villagers. Once the water flows into canal branches in villages, there is a chief in each village to decide the water supply for each household within the village. The chief is normally from the household, which contributed most to the construction of the canal and has long been respected by fellow villagers. From generation to generation, rules of governance among the public like this have been formulated and shaped by Nibond in daily life. This is a perfect sample for studies of institutionalist scholars. Water provides a special lens to understand China not only from a historical perspective. The problem of coordination between provinces along the rivers is also yet to be solved in dealing with the flooding today. One option is to concentrate resources and power at the central level. The other is to learn from people along the canals on how to accommodate diversified interests and power. The best practice may be a balance of the two. That is end of our podcast. Thank you to our writer, Dr. Zhang Yue, editor and translator Li Jia, and copy editor Kathleen Nadi. We hope you enjoyed it, and thank you for listening. See you next week.